First Timothy chapter 3. I think that's an appropriate song to sing as we pray for the Burns family, both in their lives before they were married and then after they were married continued to do exactly what we sang in that second to last stanza to send the word of God abroad to bring the strangers home. And uh, I have no doubt that heaven will tell a beautiful story of lives and souls that were one to Christ because of their faithful sacrifice. And truly, we can say it was a sacrifice. Um, sacrificing their own health uh, at times to go and to preach in the hard places so that people would know the name of Jesus Christ and the saving truth of the gospel that comes through Him alone. So what a great hymn. Great, great hymn. Well, let's look this morning, continuing in our study of First Timothy chapter 3. I had hoped to make it all the way through verse 7 this morning, but uh, we'll just get as far as we can, and we may need to finish next week uh, as this has taken a little more time than I had planned for, but that's okay. We're not in a hurry. We need to make sure that we milk the Word of God for all that we can mine from it. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, help us now as we come to Your Word. Feed us from it. We are beggars in need of being fed by the King. And we pray, O Lord, that You would do that for us, that we in turn might glorify Your name more appropriately, more fully, more adequately. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the head and king of this church. For his sake we pray, amen. Paul writes again to Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Remember, by way of review, that an elder is defined not by what he does, not by his title as much as what he is. That's the thrust of Paul's writing here to his young protege, Timothy. These are things that the elder must be. These are not negotiable qualifications and not negotiable qualities and neither are they isolated qualities as I've been saying and I hope that you men have have heard that loud and clear that these are qualities that God expects of every Christian man to be faithful in all of these things that we should all be striving for these things but the elders must be an example of these things as they seek to lead the church of Jesus Christ. Last week we made it down through Paul's initial statement that that the term blameless overshadows and it encompasses and, and covers each one of these areas so that in each one of these areas it, he is to be blameless. In other words, he is not to be able to be accused in a way that this is a pattern of life that we can pin to him. He is to be blameless in that way and we looked last week at his moral blamelessness as he is a literally a one woman man he is faithful to god's call for purity and integrity in a moral sense and we can say that this is not paul right that he is demanding that timothy be married as paul himself was not we can say that this is not a prohibition against polygamy. We can say that while we discovered last week that while it would apply to divorce, it is not limited to divorce. But he must be sexually 
pure in all of his life and in all of his dealings. Paul then moves on from the moral qualification to general qualifications that must be true of the one who would serve as an elder. Notice Paul's next statement, the elder must be one who is temperate. The Greek language of Paul's day, like our English language, had seen shifts throughout its history. This is known as the study of etymology, the development of words. And we have words today that are no longer used in a way they once were. We have words that we say and speak today, but don't hold the same connotations or meanings that they once did. Originally, this word in the Greek language, temperate, means not to hold on to wine. It's not one who clutches the bottle in such a way that he is controlled by it. And yet by the time Paul writes this letter, this word had come to include the idea of one who is clear-headed. His mind is not foggy. He's not uh, controlled by anything. He is sober-minded so that his thinking is clear. We need clear-headed men who can think biblically. That was true in Timothy's day. It's certainly true in our day that we need men leading the church who can observe the situations around them and apply the Word of God to them in a clear and rational manner. What Paul is getting about and getting to is that the elder must be a man who has stability in his life. And and not things that are present in his life that can break through and control him and break him down and make him useless in any given situation. Anything, Paul says, that would prevent a man from that steady, clear-headed, biblical, rational thinking, making right judgments, must not be present in his life, or he is no longer qualified to be an elder. He is forsaking what he must be. The pressures of ministry are at times dynamic. They are at times volatile. They, They become messy. They become difficult. They become complex and complicated. And an elder must be clear-headed enough to be able to think on his feet and to think quickly without any sort of distraction that would cause him to lose his testimony in that situation. He must be temperate. He must be clear-headed. Paul then goes on to say he must also be prudent. This is uh, closely akin to the qualification of being temperate. And yet it has just a slightly different nuance. It is a man who makes wise decisions. He has a reputation uh, of, of using discretion and common sense. And he can deal objectively with and give input to difficult situation. He's a man, we might say it, who is endowed with wisdom. And Paul says this is the kind of men you need leading the church. Men of wisdom. Men who can think clear-headedly and then apply it. He is prudent. He's able to use sound judgment. And I would say that this is an invaluable qualification for any man to have leading his home, but certainly within the church, a a man who would be on a team of elders must be known for being able to bring clarity to a situation and think rationally about it and apply biblical wisdom and truth into that situation. And so to be temperate is to not be controlled by anything. Prudent is the more positive and proactive aspect of that. Not only is he not controlled, he is actually able to contribute and be useful in one of those situations. Paul continues, and we'll just continue working our way through these. An elder must be one who is respectable. Another quality that is related to self-control. An elder needs to be a respectable man. His life needs to be well-ordered. He needs to be well-behaved. And when people hear his name, they don't recoil and say, He's a what at your church? Do you know how he behaves at work? Do you know how he behaves 
in public? Do you know how he acts at various activities around town? I can't believe your church would make somebody like that an elder. That's the very opposite of being respectable. The, the word here for respectable actually comes from the, the same Greek word from which we get our English idea of outer space, the wor- created world, the cosmos. And it means to be well-ordered. It is a universe that is well-ordered and works like clockwork. It's respectable. An elder must be a man whose deportment in life calls for and earns the respect of those around him. Respect is not something you can demand. Respect isn't a degree you can go earn. Respect is a spirit-produced character quality, as are all of these others, that incurs the trust of those around him. Now, this is so different than popular leadership models that are forced upon the church today. Leaders are told that they need to be more likable, have a greater hip factor about them to be popular or reduce themselves to the lowest common denominator to, quote, be relevant. Paul says, I don't know anything about any of that, but what I do know is this, that an elder needs to be a man who commands by his life and dignity the respect of those around him. God calls men to lead the church to be distinguished men. Men who the church can look up to and respect. Men who in the the, the most difficult moments of the church Call on a sober-minded man who is respectable, an almost father-like figure who can come in and walk beside them and care for them and lead them to the Word of God and to the God of the Word. These men will order their life according to the weighty mission of ministry in the local church. Everything in their life gets filtered through how it impacts their credibility their testimony before god and before others and they are careful to maintain that degree of respectability paul says he goes on to say that these men are hospitable in its most narrow context it means to show hospitality or loving kindness to strangers to guests one who can easily go up and and make someone feel welcome or cared for and even meet practical tangible needs if the situation calls for it but it's more than just loving strangers it certainly is that but it's so much more and would branch out to include showing love and care to those under their ministry he's a man who loves to show the love of christ and tangible ways he 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 lives to meet the needs of others an elder shouldn't be have to be told to hey you need to go meet this need he should immediately see the need and begin to act on the need and whether it's publicly known or not he works to make sure the need is met it has some bearing and some In fact, on the home as well, as an elder's home must be well-ordered so that others can be brought into the home and shown hospitality within the family context as well. And that's why Paul asked the question, if, if a man's household is out of control, how in the world will he show hospitality to those who need it? If things are so chaotic and in disarray and embarrassing to him, how could he bring someone home in order to, to minister to them? Alexander Strzok says in his book, Biblical Eldership, hospitality then is a concrete expression of Christian love and family life. And this is a necessity, again, not, not, um, not an optional thing, but Paul says this is necessary that a man exercise this kind of hospitality it's it's just who he is then paul goes on and he gives the most distinguishing trait over and against that of deacons this is the the one thing that separates elders and deacons apart primarily and that is this that the elder must be able to teach 
This is the cornerstone of Jesus' church. This is the cornerstone of how God's church grows. They grow by being fed the meat of the word. It's the very foundation, Paul says to Timothy, that he is to study to show himself approved unto God. To know the word of God, to be a student of the word. Elders aren't tasked really with any other thing than this. We go to Acts chapter 6, right? There was a trouble with the church, the early church, and the elders were busy, the, the, their pastors were busy, the apostles were busy serving the congregation so that they didn't have time to study and prepare and pray. And that's why deacons were brought into the picture to begin with, so the elders could be free for this task of teaching and preparation to teach. Isn't it true that Paul says to Timothy, look, Timothy, there's problems at the church in Ephesus. We know that. And I'm coming to help you. The cavalry is coming and and we're going to set things in order when I get there. But until I come, Timothy, just do this. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to sound doctrine. Just teach, Timothy. When an elder can't do anything else, just do that. Just point people to the Word. Just read the Word to them. The call of the elder is primarily a theological task. And that must be true in each and every situation. They must lead in the communication of that truth. That may occur behind the pulpit in the preaching ministry. It may occur in one-on-one meetings of encouragement or admonition about certain things it may occur in in a variety of different ways but an elder must be one who is always teaching god's word somehow some way it doesn't mean that all men are going to be gifted and equipped by god to be able to teach equally in their ability or their even the opportunity to teach as often. If you look at the apostles, not all the apostles were the great preachers like Peter and John and Paul. They fulfilled other roles, but with one thing we know, they were all key in advancing the truth of the gospel and of God's word. The elder must teach at some helpful level somewhere in the flock to help guide God's people to greater spiritual maturity. If you look over in chapter 5, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 for just a moment. Notice Paul makes a distinction here in elders, and there's various ways of looking at elders and various traditions and denominations and churches look at them different. But, But... Suffice it to say that Paul has in his mind an idea of eldership that not all are equal in every way. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so Paul obviously has an understanding that the task of an elder is not simply preaching on Sunday morning. But, but there's a ruling factor to elders as well. Those who, who labor to support the ministry of teaching, though they're able to do that when called upon, and they're doing it in their own context, in their own way. But there are those who rule well, and then there, there are those who rule well and work hard at preaching and teaching because it's how God has wired them. They can do both. Some may excel in one area and not another. And and we've already seen, thankfully, in our group of elders that that's true. We all kind of have our niches, and it's just how God naturally wires us. And and I've watched these two men um, carry out their ministries in a growing way and and taking on more responsibility to themselves and leading well. Whether it's at a Bible study in the middle of the week or leading worship and song or meeting one-on-one and giving encouragement and counsel and care to all of you. 
These elders rule well. They teach well. They labor well. And Paul says it must all be grounded in the Scripture. What is that demand of an elder? What is that demand of an elder? And again, I know I said somewhat tongue-in-cheek, and yet it's the truth, and it's quite sad that now we have major denominations needing to form committees to find out what a pastor is. A pastor is primarily one who teaches the Word of God. He's qualified in all these other areas, but his main drive is to teach the Word of God and to do everything we can to funnel people into the Word of God. And that, again, can be through a variety of ways. But for an elder to do that, number one, he's got to know the Word of God. That is why Paul's exhortation and command to Timothy is study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, you've got to know the Scripture, and then you've got to know how to communicate that Scripture to other people. Take what you know and speak it in such a way that people can understand that. And that is why God calls men of a variety of backgrounds and a variety of gifts and a variety of ways of communicating We learn from people based on how God wired us. If I were to survey all of you this morning and say, you know, who do you love to listen to to preach? All of you are probably going to have a a different opinion. Why? Because something about the language they use, something about the tone they use, it makes it easy for you to listen and to learn and to be affected by them. So God calls different men of different backgrounds, different abilities, different skill sets, different personality types, whatever it is, to communicate what they know to be true from the Word of God. He, the elder then has to have a life in teaching that embodies what he teaches. This is why Paul says, I discipline myself. I literally beat my body, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so that after preaching, I myself would not be cast away and disqualified. An elder must know the scripture. He must communicate the scripture. And he must defend his life. That's why Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4 verse 16. Watch your life. And your doctrine. Don't destroy what you say. By how you live. It has to be different. And then an elder must be able to defend what he believes. He must be able to point out error and say this is wrong and here's why it's wrong and here's what is right. That's Paul's admonition in his second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that you are to preach the word, be instant in season and out of season to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, to give instruction, to do all of those things. And so God calls elders to be this and to do this. God doesn't call men into eldership who don't meet these criterias. God may be calling some of you men, and I hope he is, to learn his word more deeply so that you become usable as an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. He may be calling you to equip yourself now so that you can be useful for a lifetime of service. But you must know the Word of God. You must be saturated in the Word of God so that you are useful to the flock in teaching them and leading them and pointing them to the truth. Go back to chapter 3. Paul continues on. He says he must be able to teach, but then he gives another prohibition by way of qualification. He said he must also be one who is not addicted to wine now like the admonition to be a a one woman man this prohibition may not be as clear-cut and as helpful and clearly defined as we might want it to be or think it to be at a cursory glance and though it it would maybe be more broadly seen in its literal interpretation here its principles narrowly guide the elder's life. In its most literal form, it is not a complete prohibition of alcohol. It is, however, like being temperate and being prudent, a prohibition 
against preoccupation with or overindulgence in anything that controls the mind. If there is any type of chemical addiction in the life of an elder, it will clearly cause him to lose the qualifications of being temperate, prudent, respectable. Because he will be dominated about with something that causes him to live an undisciplined and an unworthy life. Drunkenness. Preoccupation with something that that is all he can think about and live for. And so Paul says, the elder must be one who is not addicted to wine. He is not consumed by it. Now, it's not my intention to go into a full treatise on alcohol at this point, but I think it would be helpful to have a couple of quick reminders and some high points throughout Scripture and what Scripture teaches about the matter of alcohol. Because like divorce, the elder, the divorce and the elder, alcohol and the elder are not separated from the teaching of Scripture as a whole. In other words, this is not the only place we go to and say, how should the elder relate to alcohol or other things that could potentially dull his mind? First of all, we need to understand that God gave wine with a purpose and a proper use. In Psalm 104, verse 15, David writes this, Wine which makes man's heart glad. So that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains a man's heart. Like food to sustain a man, God apparently, according to the psalmist, gives wine in moderate use for a man to enjoy. Secondly, God gives wine for medicinal mercy purposes. Wine is used clearly in Scripture for the common grace of alleviating pain. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 6 Solomon writes this, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, who's dying. It was the morphine of its day, and wine to him whose life is bitter. To alleviate suffering, to alleviate physical pain, Scripture permits the use of alcohol for that. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, just two chapters later, Paul writes to Timothy, who obviously has a, a stomach condition, and he says, no longer drink water exclusively. Why? Because water in that time and in that age was filled with bacteria. And he says, rather use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent ailments. A friend of mine told me, he said, you know, he said, I'm not a, I'm not a drinker, but was in Jerusalem and went to Israel a few years ago. And he said, everybody on the tour bus, you know, upset stomach and all the issues that came with that. And he says, the tour guide says, well, there's a, there's a real quick fix for that. He said, here, drink a little cup of wine. And he said, that'll all be gone. He said, sure enough, it cleared it right up. Everybody got over it real fast. Why? Because the alcohol content was just enough to kill the bacteria they had ingested from a water source somewhere along the way. And so while Scripture may speak to the proper uses of wine for medicinal purposes or even the purpose of the psalmist in Psalm 104 of rejoicing a man's heart, Scripture categorically and explicitly condemns drunkenness and is full of examples of how destructive drunkenness can be. You think back to Noah and the destruction that it caused within Noah's own family because Noah was drunk proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 says that wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise and what does scripture go on in first timothy 3 to prohibit a man who is a brawler cannot be an elder what has the potential to do that wine and strong drink can do that to a man paul writes to the ephesian church in ephesians 5 do not get drunk with wine he says For that is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And so, like the first quality, uh, difficult quality in this passage of marriage and divorce and being a one-woman man, we, we simply have to take God's Word at face value and draw principle from it. What would the principle be about the use of any type of chemical that has the potential to alter one's mind and his behavior? Number one, God gives it by permission 
but carefully regulates it. God gives it by permission, but carefully regulates it. Secondly, we have to understand and not be naive that it is a powerful and potentially fatal thing that could affect us. And the reality is, we may not know exactly how it would affect us, and so it should be undertaken, if it is, with great care and great caution as to its potential dangers. So in that, God gives more explicit instruction and principle to those who would be leaders in the church and their use in relation to alcohol or anything that has the potential to dull the mind. Going all the way back into the Old Testament, God forbid Nazarites to drink wine in Numbers chapter 6, verse 3, giving the Nazarite order. He says, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. Why? Because it was inadvisable in the position of leadership that the Nazarites were placed to ever be in a situation where when called upon, they may not be ready for service. Because their mind had been dulled. And so God says, listen, for this specific group of people, it's just not a wise thing. It's not a helpful thing. It could cause more problems than it's worth. Therefore, it was forbidden for them. It's advisable, Solomon says, for kings or those in leadership to avoid strong drink. Again, for the same reason that it could cloud their judgments. Proverbs 3 I'm sorry, 31 verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. It has potential that leaders must consider as potentially causing them to be disqualified or unuseful in service. It was forbidden of priests when carrying out their official functions. Leviticus 10.9 Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your son, so that when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so on the one hand, we can't say that, that God's word absolutely forbids it. But on the other hand, we must seriously consider the bulk and the weight of the greater wisdom of scripture if it is to be used and ask the expediency question just as we would for the question of divorce early on in the chapter is it the best thing for me given the the call upon my life given what i'm called to do is it best not assuming yes or no but simply considering with a conscience empowered by the spirit how is this best observed in my life Could it potentially enslave me to the point of being addicted? Could it cause others to struggle around me? And that is particularly important for an elder. It's important for all Christians to ask these questions, but especially an elder. I'd go on and I'd say this. Then notice that Paul's prohibition to Timothy is not that he is a drunk. That's obviously not an issue. But Paul says you don't need to be addicted to wine. And I would just submit to you this, having counseled people in the past, that there is more than one way to be addicted. There is one, more than one way for your mind to be controlled. And it's not just that you have any kind of chemical substance in your bloodstream affecting you. It could be the control of one who that's all they can think of and desire and talk about. Someone who constantly wants to argue it and constantly thinks about it and constantly has to talk about the use of such substances is one how i would submit is addicted that's all they think of rather than being occupied and preoccupied with ministry they want to argue about these things that should not be an elder an elder has more work to do he has bigger fish to fry so to speak And so we need to be careful that we take the commands of Scripture against enslavement and control by anything seriously. Again, Paul says, listen, Timothy, there may be a use for it. There may be a proper and okay use for it, but it is regulated and it needs to be closely considered. But more than that, the overriding principle is this. It's that of addiction. Does it enslave you by its use? 
Or does it enslave you by its desire? Either would be wrong. Don't be enslaved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, I will not be mastered, controlled by anything. I refuse to do it. Why? For the sake of ministry. Notice Paul goes on and he says that the elder then must not be pugnacious. This grammatically is tied very closely to being drunk. The word literally means to be a striker, a bully who likes to fight, who, who, who turns physical in his altercations. Paul says if a man is given to that, he is not qualified to be an elder. He's not quarrelsome. And he's certainly not quarrelsome to the point of being physically abusive. Apostle Paul, I think, understands that a man who has a potential for drunkenness, certainly then has a potential to lose control of his faculties and do something he's going to regret. Destroying his reputation, destroying his testimony, destroying that ever-present call to be ready to give sound wisdom. Elders don't have a clock. Their life is ministry. And I know I've said this to Corey. I've said this to other younger guys in ministry. Ministry isn't from 8 to 5. Ministry is not Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Friday night. Ministry is a lifestyle. And you are on the clock 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, ready to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and serve His people when the need arises. Therefore, you cannot afford to do anything that places you out of a state of readiness. And some may look at this and say, well, that's kind of legalistic and that's no good and that's, you know, whatever, whatever. And it's always amazed me, it's always actually amused me that people will debate such things and they'll get upset about such things when we talk about the Christian life and when we talk about leadership within the church, and yet we all admire the military who live in a constant state of readiness. And whatever it takes, they're always combat ready. A friend of mine just came back to the United States after a long deployment with the Marine Corps to Japan. and He was explaining there all of the things that went on with COVID and still go on in the military with COVID. And while we, thankfully, have seen the broader society relax about a lot of those things, the military still is enforcing all of those protocols just as rigidly. Another friend of mine was just transferred overseas to the European theater. And they took a picture on the plane as they were going over. And here's all the civilians around them, no mask. Enjoying their flight, and what are they doing? Wearing a mask. Somebody said, what's the deal? So, well, when you're military, you have to abide by all these protocols. If not, you know, there's consequences. Why is that? Because they don't want their people in jeopardy of not being available when called because they're sick. They're doing everything they can to maintain a state of readiness and a constant footing to do whatever is necessary to fight when called upon. Why should it be any different than the, for the elder? It's not a physical fight, but it's a spiritual fight. We, we must be careful that we don't do anything that takes us. Hey, listen, I'm off the clock now. I can, I can kind of play fast and loose now and jeopardize my reputation because I'm not at church. I'm not on the clock. No, you're always called upon to live a life ready to advance the cause of ministry. You can't be do anything, be controlled by anything that would make you a fighter, he says. In fact, in the second letter, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome. He must not be a boxer. But he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's a truly a gospel issue. 
It truly is a gospel issue that the elder must not be these things because if he responds correctly, it gives him a platform to lead people to repentance and a knowledge of the truth, which is Paul's speak for the gospel. But you damage your reputation, Paul says, and you lose that precious opportunity. He then goes on and says the very opposite of that. If he's not to be a fighter, what is he to be? And he is to be gentle. He's to be gentle. The word means to be patient or tolerant, mild in behavior, especially of wrongs committed against him. He doesn't take it personally. He's not, he's not looking for a fight. He's not going to you know, be offended when people call him names for doing what God has called him to do. Yeah, it stings a little. Yeah, it's like, what? But ultimately, hey, Water off a duck's back. He doesn't insist on every right afforded to him. I have the right to do this. Yeah, but I want to minister more, so I'm not going to. Yeah, I'd be right to jump in and let my flesh rule the day. You know, they deserve to be put in their place. Yeah, they may, and yes, you could. But will it affect your ministry, Paul says? Then be gentle. Sometimes that means keeping your mouth shut and walking away. Sometimes it means, God bless you, I'm going to pray for you. I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm here to help however I can. People will be difficult and people will be stubborn and people will even be hurtful at times. But the elder has to endure such treatment and respond, not in a, in a way that communicates weakness or compromise to the message, but he must respond gently. Paul points out, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love, true, biblical, Christ-centered love, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Well, it's easy to be gentle if you're not keeping a record of wrongs. But you keep enough records in the file box, eventually the file box is going to explode. But instead, forgive and move on and becomes less of a temptation to lash out and to violate that code of being gentle that paul gives paul says he's also uncontentious like not being a brawler the elder is a peaceful man he's not a contentious or a divisive person he's not always out looking for a fight in fact we read in the book of proverbs don't mean that the lord hates six things and seven are an abomination to him one of those is a divisive person and that certainly shouldn't be the elder He should be a peaceable man, not a divisive man. One who seeks to bring people to the table of truth, bring people to Christ, rather than quarrel with them all of the time. Paul then says he needs to be free from the love of money. He's human. But he must not fall prey to that very human temptation to love money, to love material things. You know, God doesn't ever condemn money in Scripture. God doesn't condemn those who have money. God doesn't condemn those who have material things. But what God does condemn for all of us, but particularly for the elder, is to love it. To make it your God. To make it your world. Why? Because the love of money ties our heart to this world. And what does John say? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the lust of the world is doing what? It's passing away. Why would you then love something that is dying? I've said it to you this way in the past. Why would you play with a corpse? Don't do it. It's gross. It's unnatural. Our affections are to be set above. Where moth and rust don't corrupt, where a thief can't break through and steal it. Is the thing itself wrong? No. Is the possession of the thing itself wrong? No. But the love of it is. And this has to be especially true of the elder. He can't Love it. Why? Because he's in a position 
where he could manipulate things in his favor, perhaps. Or he could grow unethical practices. He could become uncharitable and refuse to help people as part of the uh, command to show hospitality. This must never be true in the elder's life. Does that mean he doesn't provide? Does it mean he shouldn't be provided for? No, but it means he shouldn't love it. It means he shouldn't do it for the money. Paul says that has to be completely absent from an elder. It's clear in Scripture that men have used the position of elder and pastor for financial exploitation. Notice what Peter says in his statement about elders in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not driven by anything, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid or ill-gotten gain, but instead with eagerness for the task itself. Titus 1, 7. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, Not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Paul warns against it later in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says that there are men who are greedy and they have the love of money in verse 5. Constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is simply a means of gain. And boy, have we seen that, right? We don't even need to name the names. They're all on TV and living high on the hog, as we say down south. But they view ministry as an opportunity to enrich themselves. Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. That's an elder. He's content with what he has. And, 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 and godliness with contentment, that is great gain. He goes on to say the love of money then is the root of all sorts of evil. Again, not money, not material things, but the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. For by longing for it, many have wandered away from the faith. They've pierced themselves with many a pain. Someone wrote in lyrics to a song not too long ago, if you come to God, or if you come to Jesus for money, then He's not your God. Money is. And it's so true. Elder must be free from the love of money, but filled with a love for Christ. A love for the flock that's placed in His care to prepare for the final day when they meet the bridegroom. Paul says this is what He must be. It's non-negotiable. Sadly today, I think we see too many churches that have thrown the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5 and others to the wind. They've thrown them to the wind and the churches are literally reaping what they've sowed. So much so that I wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ came back today, how many of those with signs that say church would actually recognize them as a church? It's not all incumbent upon the elders, but it starts with the elders. It starts with leadership. It starts with viewing ministry the way Christ viewed ministry. And the way Christ views ministry and the way Christ changes us for ministry ends up looking like this. And thus Paul says, this is what you must be in order to serve my bride. Now, does this exclude some? Sadly, yes. But does it protect the flock? Oh, absolutely. Now, I'm, the past five years, the father father of a daughter. And I get this. 
Because in my mind, there is percolating a whole list of things of what he must be. Because he must be one thing. Capable of caring for my daughter, his bride. Elders, this is Christ's bride. We must be certain things to care for her properly. And just like a father would not his hand his daughter over to some man he knows will not take care of her, so Christ does not recognize or hand his bride over to men who would abuse her, harm her, malnourish her. We must be these things because this is the bride of Jesus. And someday he's coming back for her. And we're going to stand before him and give an answer for who we were, what we were, and how we led. A stricter accountability. May God help us to lead in a way consistent with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, as we now come to celebrate what Christ has done for us, let us remember that none of these things are true because one man is more disciplined than the next man. Any of these things are only true Because Christ came and died for our sins and was raised again according to the Scripture to give us new life, to transform us, to remove sin and to make us something that in our flesh we are not capable of being or doing. It is only by the grace of God that we as believers can look at our lives and say, look at that fruit. Look at what the Spirit has done in me. And so, these very qualifications are inextricably tied. We understand that to what we are about to observe. The work and the wonder of saving grace through Jesus Christ. So may we, Father, eat and drink, not only remembering, but praising and fellowshipping with our Lord and Savior as we do so. May may we do so dependently, knowing that apart from what Christ did, none of us, none of us can ever see these kinds of fruits produced in us. And so, Lord Jesus, we we thank you. We praise you. Because, quite literally, 1 Timothy 3 is your work, not man's. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.